0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network.
2: HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: Hey there and welcome to the Feed Feed podcast. I'm Alexa Santos. The Feed, Feed is the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat and drink. Here on the podcast, we're speaking with members of the hashtag Feed, Feed community to hear their stories, learn about their culinary inspirations and get some of their best cooking tips. Today, it's my pleasure to be chatting with Gail Simmons, who you may know from Emmy Award winning Top Chef. Gail is a culinary trailblazer. She has an extensive background in professional fine dining and has been a judge and host on Top Chef since 2006. She also is a cookbook author and was a special projects director at Food & Wine. Gail has a ton of amazing projects in the works, which I'm so excited to dive into. So thank you so, so much for being here. Oh, I'm happy to talk to you. No problem. Woohoo! So, you've got a lot going on, a lot of things in the works. I know that you've been with Top Chef for a long time, but tell me a little bit about what's going on with this 20th anniversary special season coming up.
3: I've been part of Top Chef since day one, episode one, which is really hard to believe because it was a really long time ago. Uh, We started shooting in the fall of 2005, and our first season aired in 2006. And we did a few years where we did more than one season in a year. So we are now in 2023 in our 20th season. Uh, It completely changed my life. As you can imagine, we never Mm -hmm. in a million years imagined on that first day on set in San Francisco that we would be making this show for um, this long. Um, And that it would take us to the places both, literally around the world and figuratively in terms of the just adventures we've been on, the people we've met, the things we've been able to do um, that it has. So we thought it was fitting for such a huge anniversary milestone to kind of push the boundaries of Top Chef and take it, uh, to borrow a phrase from my favorite USS Enterprise captain Jean-Luc Picard, uh, to new frontiers, to boldly go Mm -hmm. where no, no Top Chef has ever gone before. Yes. And uh, so we took it international. We shot the whole show in London and then our finale in Paris. Uh, it's the first time we've ever shot a full season abroad. We do, we've done a lot of finales all over the world over the years, but we almost all, we always have done the bulk of the season in America in a different city around the country. Um, so it felt amazing to be able to finally, you know, take our chefs, to a new country and really do a deep dive in that country, but even more so to not just source our contestants and find our chefs from um, from America like we usually do, but to actually build our contestants this year from the dozens of variations of the show that exist around the world. So it's Mm. called Top Chef World All-Stars for good reason. The chef testants on the show this season were either winners or runners-up in their own country around the world, in their own country's version of Top Chef. Oh, cool. our, Our show, the Padma, Tom, and Gail show, the American show, which was the first Top Chef ever, Exists and airs in like 130 countries around the world, but there are 29 countries in the world that have their actual own versions of Top Chef. The way that you know we have the Great American Bake Off, and England has the original Great British Bake Off, or you know Master Chef in America is also Master Chef in the UK, and there's Master Chef in Australia, and all these different versions. So um, it was amazing to to get to meet some of the winners and runners up from all these different countries around the world and see how they do top chefs where they come from
1: that is so cool and like what a fun like obviously you said it's a huge milestone and what a cool way to kind of celebrate that big milestone by kind of broadening the reach and just kind of like the it it all just sounds very exciting so was it was it kind of surreal for you to be you know kind of looking back on these 20 seasons and realizing that, you know, this is look at how far you've come and how, like, much this franchise has grown that you've been with from the very beginning. Was that kind of... What was that like for you? Absolutely.
3: It's mind-blowing. You know, there's been a lot of nostalgia and reminiscing over the last several months because of it. Um, And it really just was a way to make the show feel bigger and to push the show to do new things, which is something we try to do every season. Every season, we take the show to a different city. Every season we try to um, find, you know, more talented chefs to outdo the season before. But for the 20th anniversary, we really wanted to go as big as possible. And this was just the most perfect way to do it.
1: Cool. Well, I'm very excited. And then it premieres on March 9th, correct? That's right. Yes. So yeah, we're, I'm very excited to see it.
3: (laughs) um, Yeah, it was fun. It was really fun. I mean, being in England was really fun. And, you know, it just was a good excuse to eat, you know, a lot more great food.
1: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So that's what's currently happening in the Gail Simmons world. But I want to take it back to the beginning. And obviously you have like a very extensive culinary background and life and career in the culinary space. But I want to know a little bit about how, you know, how you got into this, like where, where you're from Canada. So where did you grow up and what were some of your early culinary influences? Mm -hmm. Uh, I grew up in Toronto,
3: uh, right in the center of the city, which was an amazing place to grow up. I actually was just back there last week to visit my family. And it still is an incredibly dynamic international city. It's the fourth biggest city in North America, it's even more massive and sprawling, m- much more than it was when I lived there. I left when I was 23 to go to culinary school. I moved to New York thinking I would come here for a year, and that was 23 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it, it's great to go home. It's, it's a great place to grow up, mostly because it really is a culinary sort of mecca in Canada. It's a very, very diverse place to grow up so there were a lot of influences when I was growing up first of all of course my parents my father's South African my mother's from Montreal her parents were Eastern European you know she's first generation and my father was an immigrant to Canada and they were very adventurous travelers very adventurous eaters and we spent a lot of time as children traveling with them Um, my mom was an amazing cook She actually ran a cooking school and wrote for Canada's biggest newspaper um, a food column while I was growing up. And so without really understanding it when I was a child, I was exposed to really amazing food, very fresh food. My mom was a really spontaneous, talented home cook and built this cooking school teaching all the parents in our neighborhood how to cook at a time when most people were just cooking out of their microwave and trying to, um, you know, get out of their kitchens. So um, I guess I come by it honestly, although I didn't really realize just how much that was an influence on me until I got much older. Um, Mm. You know, no one wants to admit when they are a teenager that they're becoming (laughs) just like their parents, right?
1: Right. That is so funny. So you had very like with the background of your family, you had kind of a lot of different influences from around the world, but what were some of your favorite foods growing up that, you know, say your parents made for you or that you kind of exposed to at that age? I
3: mean, so much.
1: I have a lot of very distinct memories of,
3: you know, the traditional Eastern European Jewish food that my mother would make for holidays that are still very much recipes that I now make today with my children. Um, also, of course, because my father was South Africa, very vivid memories of spending a lot of time in South Africa and the foods we would eat there. Um, you know, everything from bultong, which is a salted cured, like dried meat. It's South Africa's version of jerky, I guess. Um, mm. To the, to you know, a lot of traditional South African recipes that I also still am very nostalgic about and make and eat now. Um, Toronto has the largest... Chinese population outside of China, and really? there are like four Chinatowns, four or five Chinatowns in Toronto, similar to New York in that there's Chinatown in Lower Manhattan, there's a massive Chinatown, you know, in in Sunset Park, like there's, it's such a massive city, and so right. my mother really was ahead of her time when I was growing up. She would do all her grocery shopping, all her fresh fruit and vegetable shopping in Chinatown, and in Kensington Market, which is the old Like immigrant market in Toronto, not unlike the Lower East Side here in New York, which, you know, was a place that was first settled by, you know, Eastern Europeans and and Jewish population fleeing World War II, but then became a largely Asian and then Latin community here in New York. Kensington Market in Toronto has had a very similar trajectory. And so it has layers and layers of these amazing immigrant communities, but it's still very much a vibrant Chinatown hub. And I have memories of, you know, grocery shopping with her there for, um, you know, bok choy and and lots of Chinese vegetables and fresh fruit and her cooking that stuff at home. Um, I went to school in an area of Toronto that had a very large Caribbean community. Toronto also has a, a huge Caribbean community, one of the biggest carnivals, like caravanas. In the world Um, I think it's the third largest otherwise there's like in you know um, there's a huge Trinidadian one and there's also a huge London you know um, carnival but Toronto's Caribbean community is incredibly vibrant and you know my after-school snack in elementary and junior school middle school was beef patties from the local Jamaican bakery so, you know, I, I really felt like I lived in a place that offered so much delicious food from around the world growing up um, and and have really clear memories of eating all of those things.
1: Well, that's awesome that you were exposed to so much, you know, of a... I don't know. You were just exposed to so much, which not, you know, many people have, you know, no, especially... No,
3: absolutely. That's I feel very lucky. Very, I'm very, like, conscious of it and also now grateful, obviously, to it. And I, it felt my parents, you know, they just kind of took us along for the ride. And I think that's the best thing we could have done in terms of exposing oh. us to other cultures in the world through the lens of food.
1: Yeah, well, that's incredible. And so when did you decide that you were passionate enough about food to then pursue going to culinary school? And you decided obviously to leave everything behind in Canada yes. to move to New York. So when did that kind of click for you?
3: Not until college, the end of college, really. I I studied anthropology and Spanish language at university. I went to McGill University in Montreal. and Montreal is another incredible city to be a student, but also to eat in. You know, it's a French, mostly French city. And so the kind of European and French traditions, very large and um, impactful, but also they have an incredible Vietnamese community, a heavy Haitian community. They have a great Latin and South American community, too. So and then a very strong uh, Eastern European and um, immigrant Jewish community, too. So I felt like when I was eating there, I really did also get to eat a lot of great food because as a student, you know, ethnic food is often what you turn to because it's inexpensive and in certain places and certain types. And there was so much in Montreal to explore. And it was through all of those restaurants in Montreal that I realized I wanted to start cooking more for myself, and that's when I sort of woke up to the fact that my mother was the key, and I would call her and get all her recipes, and that's when I really started cooking for myself this very last year in college, and also started writing about food for the McGill Student Paper, started writing restaurant reviews, and that was so much fun. I never took it seriously as a job. I just thought it was really cool to get to go to restaurants and write about them, and only yeah. when I graduated and all my friends seemed to have all these great plans of what to do. They were all becoming like lawyers and dentists and doing their MBA. And all I could think of was how much I liked to eat and write about it. And so that became the seed of the idea for my career. Huh.
1: Well, look at that. <laughs> A full circle moment for you. It just kind of all worked it out. Was. and that's.
3: Well, Very it was inspirational. Still over a year. I went back to Toronto after college and I worked in Toronto for a year before I picked up and moved to New York and went to culinary school. I I wanted to write first and foremost. So I I got jobs first at a magazine in Toronto called Toronto Life, sort of like the New York magazine or Los Angeles magazine of Toronto. Uh-huh. And then I went to work for a newspaper in the entertainment and lifestyle section. And it was through those experiences that I learned that I loved writing. But that if I wanted to write about food, I had to actually learn something about food because until that point, it was just about the fact that I liked to eat and it wasn't really based in any professional experience. And so to sort of get a leg up and be in a competitive environment, I needed to learn how to cook. And that's when I moved to New York and went to culinary school.
1: Got it. Yeah. Well, you are preaching to the choir because I too, I I got a journalism degree from Northwestern and I was... A, a journalist when I first graduated. Mm. But then I, I kind of realized the same thing that you did, that I was like, I really kind of just want to tell stories about food, like so much for this, like, news thing where I'm talking about murders and, you know, crime and all that type of stuff. But food is really what I care about. But I, right. I kind of had the same realization was that I really have no credentials in this space other than enjoying eating. <laughs> so the same exact like calculation that you did where i was like i really need to actually get to know how to do this and um you know for me it was a lot it was later and it was in the pandemic when i kind of made this switch so going to a physical culinary school was not really an option so obviously you know the way that the digital landscape has completely shifted in the last few years it was kind of a you know, cobbling together of experiences to make mm-hmm. this work. But yeah, you are yeah. totally preaching to the choir yeah. of that whole, like, you know, I love writing and I love, you know, being a journalist, but I really want to do it about food. So how do we make that happen? So I mm-hmm. and like, to be fair, when I made these,
3: this decision, this was again, like 24 years ago, or something, I'm a lot older than you. And I, uh, and at the time there weren't as many options to right. learn how to cook as there are now there. And there weren't many out that many outlets, you know, the internet was like just as at its infancy mm-hmm. and crazy as that sounds, there was no social media. The food network had a few like big name chefs on it. And that was it. There was no cooking competitions. There were no blogs. There was no Instagram. Um, and so in order to really get experience and learn how to cook and then make a name for myself and get a job, it really meant I had to go to culinary school or get someone to take me on as a, um, you know, as a, as a stage, which yeah. is what I'm doing. Both of those things, but, you know, in terms of wanting to write about food and work in food media, there were very few places. It really meant finding a magazine or a newspaper um, to hire me because all yeah. of the online media didn't exist yet.
1: What a time! Yeah, a crazy time. Totally. <laughs> and so, were it was you like ancient? <laughs> no it's I mean it's cool it's very like I don't know what the word is it's it's kind of like quintessential like that's kind of like what yeah. it, that's what it was all about like that's what this whole industry was really like formed on was like well, those you, like those early days sure. of it but you
3: also realize how quickly the industry's changed because that was yes that was just 20 years ago and in 20 years the entire industry of food media has completely transformed
1: oh my gosh like insane because that's when I was kind of Growing up was watching mm-hmm. like these very early Food Network shows, like the the Emerald Lagasse and exactly. the 30 Meals. Me like the the old school Iron Chef, the one that was in Japanese, and That's you know, right. so that was you know me being a little kid watching those things, and that kind of is what formed my earliest memories oh. of being interested in food. And it's kind of cool to see you know someone like you who was like cutting their teeth at that time, and how you know how you've kind of grown and evolved with the industry and how it's just like it's this very fluid thing that we almost like can't even wrap our arms around when people ask me, where do I want to be in five years? I'm like, you know, I don't know it because it doesn't exist you know, yet. It doesn't exist. Exactly. Like same thing. Three, four years ago, you know, this whole short form video, you know, TikTok, mm-hmm. all this stuff didn't exist. And now that's like such a driving force and who is successful in this industry is, you know, regarding short form video and recipe content creation, and none of that existed before. So it's like five years from now, I don't know what the thing will be. I really don't know. (laughs) So it's so hard to answer.
3: Because people ask me that question all the time and I'm exactly with you. I never answer it. I'm like, I don't have an answer for you. Let's just talk. Let's talk in six months and I'll tell you where I am.
1: Exactly. There's no way to know. It's so funny. Yeah. Cause I really, and I feel like I'm like, am I like a dumbass for not having any answer?
3: I don't (laughs) believe in a five year plan. I truly don't because every single thing I've done in my career and any modicum of success I've had, I really feel has been because of like a sharp left turn at the last minute.
0: And I Mm. could never
3: have planned for it or seen it coming. Cop chef being the ultimate example of that. Um, and had I set my eyes on one thing, I think I would have closed the door to so many other opportunities. So I don't really believe in, you know, telling you exactly where I want to be in five years from now, because if you get so stuck on a goal in the distant future, you like forget about all the short term things you're missing and those lead to bigger things.
1: Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to ride with that. I'm going to use that next time someone asks me because I was like, I'm sorry. I don't have it together at all. All I know is I want to be in food media. I want to be telling stories about food. I want to be cooking. I want to be, you know, trying new things and, you know, hopefully traveling and, you know, having those culinary experiences. But I don't know if that'll be on virtual reality. I don't know if that'll be if like people are even going to be watching TV anymore in five, 10 years. Like who really just don't know what the medium will be. But I can tell you that it's food and that's about it. (laughs) Yeah. Amen. Yes. All right. So we we can use that. We're just going to like gas each other up on this and just mm-hmm. like keep it rolling anytime someone asks. <laughs>
3: it's not all right for us so far, so no one can complain.
1: All right. We're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors.
2: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: So you, you know, did kind of the opposite of what I did, in which you actually went and you were staging at restaurants and, you know, really getting in there and kind of developed this fine dining background. So what was that kind of like for you? I know that that's a bit of a not tumultuous, but it's especially however many years ago that was, it it was tough. And you really like put in the grunt work. And so what was that experience like for you working in restaurants? I assume in New York city, just like kind of doing the damn thing.
3: I mean, culinary school was amazing. Culinary school was like food camp. It was like that moment in life where I realized I'd found my place and I'd found my people and I was exactly where I should be. And it was, you know, eight months of, Amazing discovery! I was living in New York City. I was at cooking school every day from nine to five, and then I had my nights free to explore New York. And I was in my early twenties, and it was bliss. Yes. Um, number one. Then I went to cook in restaurants when I graduated, and I took it upon myself to cook in very difficult restaurants. And I, I don't think I would have done the same thing again if I knew what I know now, um, mm-hmm. because. Well, for a lot of reasons. The industry has changed a lot, but I chose very fine dining, large restaurants. And, you know, there's pros and cons. Like anything, working for a startup versus working for a big corporation, you you get that big corporation experience, that big kitchen experience. But because you are one little person in a very big operation, you do very, you know, you do very little, very precise things. So, um, you know, I, versus if you go to a small restaurant and you're only five people in the kitchen, even though you're the lowest rung on the ladder, you get to do everything. Right. Cause there's only so right. many. hands. Anyway, I chose big restaurants, but they were extraordinary places. And I definitely learned a lot from them in both kitchens that I chose to work in. Again, this is in the nineties, the late nineties, I believe 1999, uh, I was the only woman in both kitchens, both savory oh, kitchens. Uh, in the first kitchen I worked in, there were women in the pastry kitchen, but no women in the savory kitchen. And in the second kitchen I worked in, uh, I was the only woman, period. And they were they were very difficult places to work, but I learned an enormous amount. And I think that physical experience of working on a line was so essential to me to do everything that came after it because I learned the language of a professional kitchen. I learned a sense of urgency. I learned how to think like a restaurant thinks versus like a home cook, you know, like a a professional cook thinks uh, in terms of organization and preparation. And those were all really valuable lessons in making me a strong cook. Um, And so that was excellent. I also was exposed to ingredients and clientele and you know, food that I would never otherwise as a young person have a chance to taste and cook with and try. Right. And that was really exciting. Um, but I ultimately went into it knowing that I didn't want to be a, a professional cook. Right. I, I didn't, I didn't uh, become, I wouldn't go into these kitchens to be a chef. So I also went into them knowing that they were going to be experiences that um, were limited and, and short term. I never, I never had the aspiration to stay working and become a chef. So I knew it was kind of a short term thing and that was great because I could do it. And then when I felt like I had gotten the experience I needed, I could, uh, and that I wanted to go back to writing because I always knew that writing was my goal or being in media, I should say was my goal. Um, Mm -hmm. I felt like it was time to leave and I could leave. And so I took those experiences with me and um, I learned so much from them, but I was also relieved when I could feel like I had another opportunity to take all the things I've learned and bring them back to the writing and the media side of the industry.
1: Right. Right. It, yeah, no, I get it. It's almost like it was a means to an end, but it gave you that platform of knowledge and expertise that has helped you throughout the rest Absolutely. of your career. So it was yeah, it, it, it needed to be done. Well, and I just think
3: you, you go into a diff you go into a job with a, with different expectations of yourself when you know that it's not the end goal. If I had been aiming to be a, chef, a restaurant chef, I think it would have been even harder for me. I mean, it was hard. And I I got my ass handed to me every day. And
1: mm-hmm.
3: it was the hardest physical work of my life. And the hours were crazy. And I wasn't always treated very well. But I knew that it was fine. Ink. And if, if I had gone in being a chef, I think that would have been even harder. And why I, I applaud people who you know, start at the bottom and work their way all the way up because it is no easy task, and it would have been very disillusioning and 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 really difficult for me to stay in the game on the long haul if that was my end goal and um and and kind of battle through it because it is really really hard work. I yep.
1: Yeah, I've, I've I've interviewed the a variety of different chefs with different backgrounds who spent sure. different amounts of time in the, you know, restaurant industry at various, you know, periods of time. And so I, I kind of know, even though I didn't do it myself just by talking to others, what type of experience that is and how it has changed so much and how it, can be so tough, especially for women, and especially like you said in the early 90s. I mean, it's changed mm-hmm. so much since then, but not early here- 90s, late 90s, 99. Okay, sorry, sorry. 2000, yeah. <laughs> How not that
3: dare long. I? You just aged me 10 <laughs> years, but so that's okay. I didn't read you. <laughs> okay. It's <said>, okay.
1: <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I just, I could only imagine what type of experience that was like for you so it's just kind of you know it very interesting to hear about and i assume you know you have plenty and plenty of stories and you know i'm kind of glad to hear that you came out on the other end and you know it all worked out i don't regret it i'm so glad i mean i really
3: like every everyone i believe you know every job i took got me to where i am and i don't think i could do what i do today had i not had all those formative experiences and I learned so much and I'm so glad I did it. Um, also, that's when you're supposed to do those things, when you're in your early right. 20s and you're like physically able and staying up till 2 a.m. every single night and working 12-hour shifts is completely under the realm of normalcy. Um, so I'm really glad I did it. And I worked for Amazing Chefs and I made a lot of really amazing really, you know, like relationships and, and discoveries about myself too. So it was a, a crazy time, but a great time.
1: Yeah. And here you are. So, <laughs> correct, and you, you live to tell the tale. So that's, that's what matters. So when you first started with Top Chef and, you know, I, when you were describing it earlier, it sounded like you nor anybody involved knew that it was going to become what it did. So what was that kind of like for you? And, you know, you said 2005 is when you started filming and I guess you were working at food and wine before that was, yeah, there were was going five through-
3: years plus there was almost six years between the time that I was cooking restaurants and the time that I went on top chef. And in those six years, I did many other things in, in food media. I worked uh, at Vogue magazine as the assistant to the food critic for two years. And then I went to work for Danielle Balu for three years as his kind of PR and marketing manager. Mm. And then from there, I went to food and wine and it was about eight months, Almost a year, maybe just a year into my job at Food & Wine magazine, where I had hit my pinnacle. Like, I was set there. I was happy. Yeah. I didn't want another job. Um, I was doing all the things that I had set out to do when I left Canada, which was to work in food media at a major food publication that I admired. And Food and & Wine was the ultimate version of that. Um, so I finally felt like I'd found and I'd, I'd done it. I'd gotten there. I was 29, and I was working with incredible people, I was—I had just taken over directing the Food Wine Classic in Aspen, which is this amazing event that Food Wine puts on every year—and I was like off to the races, perfectly happy yes. in that role. And um, the publisher and editor of Food Wine came to me one day and said that they were talking to Bravo about this potential idea for a show about the real lives of restaurant cooks and chefs. And Um, And it was going to be a food competition show, which didn't exist before that. Remember, the only other competition show out there in the food space was Iron Chef Japan, as you mentioned, Uh which was a very different show, obviously. And would I go talk to Bravo about potentially being the editor that represented the show, the magazine on the show as part of the judging panel? And all of that was as if they were speaking Like, they could have been speaking German or Swahili. I had no idea. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about right now. Reality food competition, that makes no sense. I look at Food Wine Magazine, and I'm not quite sure I want to be on television. And um, they were like, just go talk to them. It's not a big deal. And uh, I did. And then I went back to my job and didn't think anything of it. And about three weeks later, they called us and said, we'd love to have Gail on the show representing the magazine and if food and wine would be our, our kind of magazine partner to make the show and teach us about the world of chefs and, and the food industry. And they like shipped me off to San Francisco to film that first season. And I just had no idea what was in store.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then nothing was the same. after Nothing that. was the
3: same. I mean, I did it really, um, on a like whim thinking I would just do it for three weeks and it would be kind of a fun, cool, crazy thing. And then I'd go back to my job at Food and Wine and all would be fine and I would just continue on that path that I was already on. And that's what I did. Uh, you know, we felt confident that Tom Colicchio, who was the head judge obviously from the first day, you know, he's a chef that we knew well and admired and kind of trusted that if he was going to take this leap on this crazy show, that we would be okay because he wasn't Mm going to let us all fail. (laughs) And um, we trusted Bravo because they had just done Project Runway, which Top Chef's format was based on, you know, same format basically, but in food instead of fashion. And so we liked the bones of the idea, but we had no idea if it would be a success. Obviously I went back to my job at Food & Wine and didn't think anything of it. It was only, you know, the season aired – and it got a little traction, and people in the industry kind of liked it, but it didn't become an overnight success. And then I think they re-aired it, like, over the summer a few months later. And after it kind of re-aired for the second time, it really picked up speed, and they renewed it for a second season, and then a third season. And that was when I sort of went to it and was like, what's going on here? Because I'm pretty sure that I have two full-time jobs now, and I'm not quite yeah. sure what's happening. Like, I don't know how this happened. What, are, you know, how, where do I go? What do I do next? And that was amazing. I mean, it was amazing to watch the sort of slow um, awakening of the show and finding our own footing and seeing how the the industry and also just our viewers reacted and how passionate they were and how we realized that we'd really hit on something that people wanted to watch.
1: Yeah. Wow. No kidding. And it's so, it's so cool to hear you describe this because my, you know, that's like how I described that. I really grew up watching, you know, these early competition shows. That was a big part of what inspired me to get into food media as well at a very, very young age is watching these kind of early seasons of Top Chef. And my parents were both in the restaurant industry their whole career. So this was kind of just always on in our house. So it's so cool to kind of hear the other side of it. Cause like little old me, I'm like, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old watching these shows and not really knowing how big of an impact this was going to have on me in my life. And then here you are, you know, in your career, having your whole life changed by this show. So it's kind of funny and very interesting to see like the ripple effects and impact that something like that can have. And, you know, here we are now. And it's just like, yeah, who would have thought that (laughs) it would have created so much for so for so many people and not to mention all the the chefs that go on the show and compete and then, you know, are given that exposure and that, you know, credibility in the industry that benefits them. So it's just, it's very, very cool and fascinating to hear about the wide impact of something like that.
3: And I think it took us a while to really hone in on all of that too. I mean, we knew we had this goal in mind, but the show actually changed a lot from the first season, let's say to the third or fourth, because we were still, taking the temperature of the audience and learning along the way. And the best thing I think about working on Top Chef has been that it's always been a a conversation in real time about what's really going on in the industry. And our producers and the network have always given us a lot of room to experiment and have always listened to the viewers. And we learned after that first season that, you know, the first season contestants were made up of like some home cooks, some culinary school grads some professional chefs some private caterers you know it was sort of a run the gamut in terms of expertise and after the first season we realized that's actually not what our viewers want our viewers really wanted to know about real restaurant professionals and Mm -hmm. about chefs cooking at the highest level because that's a whole universe that most people don't get to see or didn't get to see until we came on the air you know that that door into the kitchen and what really happens in a kitchen and how hard it is and the talent needed and the skill and the dedication and the hard work. And that's when we realized we really need to make a show about professional chefs. It's not, you know, there's a lot of cooking shows out there and people are at various levels, but I think what top chef has always done really well. The point of differentiation is made it about not just people who are line cooks or people who are cooks who want to become professional chefs, but are, Like executive chefs, you know, who've been cooking Mm -hmm. for 10 years plus who are at the, pin, you know, who are at the precipice of their careers about to become really big deals. And we give them that extra, like, push over the edge, And and now if you look at, like, the track record of the chefs who've been on the show, um, it's just amazing to see that we gave them this platform and, and how well they've run with it.
1: Yeah, well, it's very very cool and, you know, incredible to see, you know, colleagues and friends in the industry like, you know, so positively impacted by this and it's, you know, amazing to hear how you've really watched it grow since the very inception of it and yeah. here you are 20 seasons later and yeah, it's just it's really really awesome. So, is there, I mean, obviously we've talked a lot about you know, the success of the show and, you know, how that's had such a big impact in your career, but for you, for Gail Simmons, Mm -hmm. what are some of your, I guess, personal goals or, you know, obviously we don't, we don't talk too much about five-year plans, but are there any, you know, big picture things that you kind of have in the works or that you're pursuing? I know you have cookbooks and all kinds of things happening, but is there any, you know, like personal Gail Simmons projects that we should be aware of coming out anytime soon? Um, yeah. Yes and no.
3: I mean, yes, there are, of course. Um, you know, I've written two books and uh, I'm really, you know, proud of them. Um, there is a possibility of a third book that I'm working on, but it's, it's a long time in the making or at the beginning stages of it. And I think it could be really great, but there's a while till I have anything to really tell you about it. Um, you know, in 2014, I formed a production company with a with a partner um and we set out to make more content i say content because yes it can be television but it's not all television Mm -hmm. content as we all know comes in many forms and uh really to work specifically on finding new female voices in the food space and lifestyle space Uh, because as we all well know we're still a minority we are still really underrepresented and not only just women but women of color Um, there are just far fewer opportunities to rise to the highest levels of the industry. And there's a lot of barriers to entry, uh, you know, and reasons that we all know and understand, but are trying to make easier and more, um, open for women specifically. So that's our goal. And we've been lucky to make a bunch of great sort of shows and work on a bunch of great projects to that end. Um, And hopefully we'll have more soon. We kind of took a pause during the pandemic and now we're just gearing up again uh, on a few ideas that that we're excited about and that we can share with the world. So those are sort of big things that I work on. Um, And, you know, over the last couple of years, I had two children and um, that takes up a lot of my time too because I'm a woman, (laughs) (laughs) because I'm a parent. I mean, all parents, it takes a lot of time.
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, you've got a lot cooking, no pun intended. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's, you know, very exciting to see, you know, how this all progresses for you. And, you know, thank you so much for sharing so much about your story and your journey with me and our listeners. And it's been like truly, truly fascinating. And I can't wait to tell my parents everything you told me because they are huge fans of the show and you. Oh, I love and that. Yeah, yeah. They were like, oh, tell Gail we say hi. <laughs> so they are like chomping at the bit to hear about what we talked about. So yeah, I'm very excited to to dish all the very fun and interesting uh, tidbits that you told me about. So congratulations on everything and thank you so much for you know sharing that with us. And it's been a pleasure and a thrill speaking with you, Gail.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I appreciate it.
1: Of course. And yeah, looking forward to the new season is it actually called like world all-stars is yes. that the official name of it okay
3: top chef world all-stars march world 9th all-stars Bravo.
1: hey mm-hmm. i love that so fun so yeah can't wait and yeah thank you so much my pleasure thanks so much Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is The Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. If you have a food story to tell or want us to interview a blogger, cookbook author, chef, or restaurateur, we would love your suggestions. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.